Morley Safer is gone, and an era in TV news is gone with him. For almost half a century, the Canadian-born journalist who died last month at 84, barely a week after announcing his retirement, was a cornerstone of 60 Minutes. This elegantly rumpled man was broadcast news' closest thing to America's storyteller. I gravitated toward his work from a very young age, long before I had the slightest inkling that I might end up as a journalist, because he was so clearly his own person. That couldn't have been an easy thing to be on a broadcast with so many outsized egos. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Ed Bradley. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Harry Reasoner. I'm Diane Sawyer. I'm Meredith Vieira. When you saw Morley Safer, a wrinkled sport coat in the image of a newsman, you knew that on some basic level he didn't fit in, but also that he was fine with that. As a correspondent on straightforward news and investigative pieces, he could punch his weight with any of his colleagues. Arguably his greatest 60 Minutes piece, Linnell Jeter's In Jail, freed a Dallas-area man from incarceration on a robbery charge. Jeter is now a motivational speaker in Dallas. The story won pretty much every award in existence, including a Peabody. You said that Deborah Cotton was out here. She wasn't out here at all. There was a lady from E-Systems, black I was white. told, black, that was sitting out in the hallway. Deborah Cotton's white. Well, then Again, obviously, never obviously I'm, relying on what, I'm relying on what Mr. Siegel told me. To Deborah Cotton, who places Lionel Jeter at his desk at 3 o'clock. That's was not spoken to, as far as I understand, okay. by you, you, or your investigator in advance of the trial. Mr. Walker, who places Lionel Jeter there around 3.45 or 4 o'clock, impossible he could have committed the crime. You didn't talk to them. You could see Safer's distinctive approach in his pre-60 Minutes work for CBS News as well. In particular, his reporting out of Vietnam may be the most influential in the whole history of American TV journalism. Safer didn't just parrot the official line, nor did he turn combat correspondence into a glorified, occasionally bloody travel log. He gave you the texture. He gave you the personalities. He gave you the sounds of the place. The feel of the place. Watch his pieces from the mid-60s and you can practically smell the jungle. Behind me over here is a UH-1D medevac helicopter. We were coming into one of the passes near Ancade, and we were shot down. The chopper must have taken at least five or six hits. One went past my face, broke the plexiglass, and hit, or rather bruised, the arm of our sound man, Bob Funk. A segment that showed US American GIs casually burning villagers' huts with Zippo lighters and flamethrowers almost single-handedly changed the tenor of war coverage by revealing the casual cruelty that is common in all war zones. It was a shock to viewers and to the United States government. Lyndon Johnson's administration even contacted CBS after it aired to call Safer and his producer unpatriotic. Did you uh, set fire to these houses here? No, we were just off to the left of it when it was burning. Were you getting fire from them? Somewhat, not too much. A slow sniper fire. It first appeared that the Marines had been sniped at and that a few houses were made to pay. Shortly after, an officer told me he had orders to go in and level the string of hamlets that surrounds Camney Village. And all around the common paddy field that feeds these hamlets, a ring of fire. 150 homes were leveled in retaliation for a burst of gunfire. The women and the old men who remained will never forget that August afternoon. 
Both his writing and his delivery were at once plain-spoken and lyrical. Listen to the following introduction to a 1993 60 Minutes segment about the tango craze in Finland, Tango Finlandia. It's read over images of granite-faced citizens on the streets of Helsinki. This is not a day of national mourning in Helsinki, Finland's capital. These are Finns in their natural state, brooding, private, grimly in touch with no one but themselves, the shyest people on earth, depressed and proud of it. We found that no one looks anyone in the eye, so intensely private that to be noticed is an embarrassment, to take notice an affront. Here's his introduction to a 1987 piece about the world's most expensive car. If there is one consuming passion in this country, it is with cars. If there is one consuming passion in Italy, it is with cars. If there is truly a dream car to satisfy those passions, the name it bears is this, Lamborghini. Being a dream, it is, of course, utterly impractical. Price about 120000 space, two seats, no trunk. If this story looks like a commercial, well, no harm done. They can only make about 300 a year, and you might have to wait two years to get one. Safer was known for this kind of writing, plain-spoken, yet supple, melodic, and suggestive of revelations to come. And then there was that voice, a voice of experience, wry but not smug, lived in, worn, a bourbon and cigarettes voice, he did a lot of celebrity profiles, but my favorite was his piece on Jackie Gleason, most of which took place in a bar with a pool table. Gleason and Safer smoked all the way through it, and it was pretty obvious that it wasn't water they were drinking. Hey, hey. Good night, Mr. Gleason. That little snide remark will cost you. <laughs> Do you like that one, pal? Please. Great shot. You didn't touch a ball. Wish I could do that. He was an artist with words, written and spoken. He didn't just go places and talk to people and tell you a story. He painted a picture, and there was no mistaking his brushstrokes for anyone else's. Safer got into a lot of trouble with the New York art world for a couple of pieces he did, asking whether abstract art was really art. These were probably my least favorite pieces of his in the long run. I studied to be a visual artist in high school and did well enough that when the time came to go to college, it was a toss-up between art and writing. I went with writing. But in an alternate universe, I became a painter, an abstract painter. So Safer's withering disdain for abstract art wounded me, although I later saw it as a rare example of provincial attitudes in a man who otherwise radiated sophistication. This one, a canvas of scrolls done with the wrong end of a paintbrush, bears the imaginative title of Untitled. It's by Cy Twombly and was sold for $2,145,000. And that's dollars, not Twombly's. I interviewed Morley Safer back in 1998 when I was a TV critic for the Star-Ledger of New Jersey. It was a dream come true for me. I studied Safer the way other kids studied their favorite movie stars or sports heroes. The result was one of the many encounters I've had that was so memorable that I wish like hell I'd saved the microcassette containing the unedited interview so that I could hear my own nervous 29-year-old voice in the same room with one of my heroes. I asked if I could interview him in a bar because that's where Safer interviewed Jackie Gleason. He got the joke. Safer smoked filterless cigarettes all through the interview, but he didn't drink because he was on the job. He sipped from a water glass the whole time. 
He insisted that I have a drink, though. We're in a bar, he told me. Knock yourself out. He said he thought that cynicism was a really dangerous quality. He told me, sometimes it may be necessary, but if everything is looked at with an absolutely jaundiced eye, why bother? Another thing he told me that stuck with me was this. He hated the idea of the quote-unquote common man. He thought it was the opposite of good reporting to think that way. That's why he admired the war reporting of people like Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn and the long features by Joseph Mitchell, who wrote for The New Yorker for over 30 years, doing detailed pieces that had no news hook to speak of, pieces that just sort of hung out with Bowery characters or that contemplated the rats of the waterfront. There is no such thing as the common man, Morley Saver told me. If there were, he said, there would be no need for journalists. The uncommon nature of people is what I find interesting. I asked what excited him, and he said, amusing national characteristics, really smart people, really good artists, even if the work is not reflected in their personality at all, people with grand obsessions, especially if they're not hurting anybody. An editor of mine once told me that the best stories are filled with the kinds of details that reporters tell each other over drinks after they filed the piece. That's what Safer did for over 40 years, more if you count his youthful stints with the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Just ask Stephen Reiner, who is Safer's main 60 Minutes producer from 1996 on. Of course, what distinguished him most of all was his writing, that remarkable ability to come up with these turns of phrase that just hit the nail on the head so perfectly time and time again you know, and his ability to match words to picture. You know, I was just watching a piece that you produced for Morley on Oliver Sacks, and one of the things that jumped out at me right away is the way that Morley's narration, the writing and the delivery, captures the obvious affection that he has for Oliver Sacks. Yeah, I mean, he was a painter, but it's almost like he's painting his portrait. Diagnosing Oliver Sacks is not for the logically minded, awkward and shy, but a born performer, an academic slapstick. The absent-minded professor conscious of his absent-mindedness. And, of course, one of the great joys of, of producing Morley is when you have the opportunity to bring two minds together like that, you know, to bring two spirits together like that, to bring two people who really were unique in the way they looked at the world and the way they, you know, drew the world. Um, it happened also, we did a profile of a, a lesser-known fellow, but a guy named Peter Gomes, who was the um, chaplain of Harvard for many, many years. And just another great, you know, unique character who Morley really connected with. Yes, I remember that one, too. He was a, a, a op openly gay. Right, black, openly gay Republican who was sort of the vicar of, of Harvard in a wonderful way. He lives alone, just steps from Harvard Yard, in an official residence called Sparks House, a 19th century gem. Surrounded by antique furniture right. he's been collecting all his life. Yeah, 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 that's right, right, okay, yeah. And what you want to do is give us three, bong, three. bong, yeah. bong. A dinner party, Shay Gomes, is a small grand opera, even when the guests are just family, cousins close and distant. The Gomes don't quite go back to the Mayflower, but the family is rooted in the themes and values, even the land of America's pilgrim past. You know, as you know, Morley could do all sorts of things other than 
do pieces for 60 minutes. I mean, he was a cook, he was a gardener, he was an artist, he was a race car driver, you know. I mean, he, he, was, he was extraordinarily well-educated and well-versed in lots of history, but his long relationship with 60 Minutes was such a perfect marriage of his interests and and a vehicle that was there for him to express them. I mean, he just spent all those years being who he was. Leslie Stahl, Morley Safer's longtime stablemate at 60 Minutes, describes him as a laid-back man with a sort of inelegant elegance. He was more in, in his presentation and what the audience saw. He was more of an old shoe kind of guy. You know, Mike was really handsome. And uh, Ed was was suave and cool, you know. Um, and there was Morley, you know, he, he's the kind of guy you'd feel really comfortable with if he were in your living room or even in your bedroom while you're watching television. Um, so that was a little unusual. I think most of the guys on television were were really handsome, and, and he wasn't like that. I think that side of him made people like him. It contributed a lot to his sense of being something of an outsider, and that outsider eye allows you to see things differently than we do. His taste in stories, you know, we choose our own stories. He, his real interest was in the offbeat, in the unusual, in the eccentric. Um, and because his writing was so special and his perceptions were so, I would say, just a little off kilter, uh, his pieces became almost the personality of 60 Minutes. And he was as important to the sense that you'll be surprised when you watch 60 Minutes. As anybody. I remember Don Hewitt told me one time that uh, the best possible reaction, that one that he wanted every single 60 Minutes piece to inspire, was, holy shit, Edna, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, that was that's exactly right, except it was Mildred. Mildred! <laughs> Don said it all the time, and uh, I didn't know that was the greatest compliment you could get in the screening room. That was the gold standard. I didn't know that. Wow. And Morley's pieces were almost all had that. I didn't know that. Morley was special, truly special. And, you know, you work at 60 Minutes. You're working with a lot of special people. But even in that environment, he, 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 he stood above. Morley Safer's producer, Stephen Reiner, expresses a similar affection. He describes his colleagues in the news magazine as strong individuals, tough as nails. But Safer, he says, had something else a quietly adventurous quality. He was the eternal tourist. You know, I would, I would say the thing that jumps out at me most about working with Morley was the fact that it was just interesting. It was, it was just interesting. It was fascinating. I mean, who would you rather, aside from your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend, who would you rather go on a trip with? Who would you rather walk around Florence with? Who would you rather walk through the museums of St. Petersburg, Russia with? You know, who would you rather have a great meal in some out-of-the-way little spot in, you know, Bangkok with? It's sort of looking at the world just with a little, you know, a little gleam in your eye. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. Join me and my co-host, Gazelle Amami, next week for another edition of the Vulture TV Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the Vulture TV Podcast. The Vulture TV Podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks to Cher Vincent for production help with this episode, and a very special thanks to Kevin Tedesco at CBS. 
The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. See you next week, and thanks for listening.